Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the fall of 2015, and a man named Dmitry Klokov reaches out to Ivanka Trump. He wants to offer Donald Trump what he calls political synergy, helping Trump get close to Vladimir Putin. Klokov ends up talking at length with Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, who wants to use Klokov to help with the Trump team's efforts to build a tower in Moscow. Cohen's conversations with Klokov never come to anything, and they might be chalked up to just yet another instance of Russian outreach to Donald Trump's world. Except there's a twist. Dmitry Klokov is a Russian energy executive with ties to the Kremlin, the kind of person you'd think might offer Donald Trump political synergy. But the whole time, Michael Cohen thinks he's talking to another Dmitry Klokov. If you want to be a professional sportsman, you must sometimes drink training after sauna, after massage. This Dmitry Klokov is an Olympic medalist and a weightlifter with a popular YouTube channel. And when Cohen talks to the special counsel's office three years later, he's apparently still under the impression he was speaking with the weightlifter rather than the former Kremlin aide. I'm Lawfare's managing editor, Quint Jurassic, and this is another bonus episode of The Report. We've just finished volume one of our podcast bringing to life Robert Mueller's report on Russian election interference, and we're hard at work on volume two. We'll have that ready for you soon, but in the meantime, we've put together some bonus episodes for you to enjoy. Michael Cohen's confusion over the two Dmitry Klokovs is one of many strange loose ends in the Mueller report, little details that are weird, confusing, or just plain funny. But volume one of the report is 200 pages long, and seven podcast episodes just isn't enough space to cover it all. So this week, I sat down with my lawfare colleagues to bring you our favorite tidbits of Mueller ephemera, the most interesting stories related to Volume 1 that we weren't able to fit in the podcast so far. We have stories of cryptocurrency, mysterious grand jury activity, and some of the very strange things Michael Flynn got up to while lobbying for the Turkish government. First, here's lawfare's chief operating officer, David Priest, on the role of Bitcoin, yes, Bitcoin, in the Mueller report. In volume one of the Mueller report, in its discussion of Russian hacking and dumping operations, there are several tidbits about Bitcoin that hint at things in the investigation and hint at things regarding future efforts and future investigations. A reminder for the context here, the Mueller report describes how the Russian GRU hacked the computers and email accounts of organizations, employees, and volunteers supporting the Clinton campaign including the email account of Chairman John Podesta, and how starting in April 2016, the GRU hacked into the computer networks of the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and the Democratic National Committee, or DNC. In the details about how the GRU units targeted the Clinton campaign, 
The text of the report pulls back the curtain just a little bit on how the GRU purchased computer infrastructure used in its hacking operations. It employed what it called a Bitcoin mining operation to secure Bitcoins. This is the first reference in the report to this decentralized cryptocurrency. And like a few other parts of the text, it's frustrating because of redactions. The actual unit of the GRU doing the Bitcoin mining, and perhaps more, is blocked out so as not to reveal an investigative technique. So we find out in a footnote that someone or some group within that GRU unit kept its newly mined Bitcoins in an account that it says was on the Bitcoin exchange platform CEX.io. That wasn't all though. Muller and his team also found that unit 26165 of the GRU used some of its Bitcoin to help disseminate the hacked materials. So the GRU started to plan the releases of documents stolen from the Clinton campaign and its supporters at least as early as April 19, 2016. We know that because unit 26165 used an anonymizing service to register the domain dcleaks.com. And how did the GRU then pay for the registration? You guessed it, a pool of Bitcoin that it had mined. And about a week before, using its Bitcoins to register dcleaks.com, that same unit tried to register the website electionleaks.com using the same domain registration service and presumably would have used Bitcoin to pay for it. We don't know, in part because of another investigative technique redaction. That's it. That is the small footprint of Bitcoin in the Mueller report, but it's fascinating for two reasons. First, it's an example of the thorough and detailed nature of the investigatory work of the special counsel and his team. They didn't leave many stones unturned. Instead, they even looked under electronic anonymized stones. But the GRU presumably thought that using Bitcoin to handle these transactions would give it a safe cutout, would give it a way to anonymize first the purchase of the computer infrastructure used in the hacking, and then the acquisition of dcleaks.com. Little did they know that Mueller and his team would be able to drill down and find out anyway. How they did so? That's what's redacted behind the investigative technique redaction. Second, it's a preview of what's to come. We have no reason to think that foreign interference in U.S. elections, or for that matter, any number of U.S. political and social matters, is over. And any such efforts seem likely to rely on the perceived anonymizing benefits of Bitcoin. As David says, the Mueller report is covered with tantalizing black redaction bars that often seem like they're hiding key pieces of information. And some of the most tantalizing redactions may have to do with one person in particular, Donald Trump Jr. Here is Benjamin Wittes, editor-in-chief of Lawfare, who you've heard throughout this podcast as the voice of the Mueller report. On page 117 of volume one, there is a curious pattern of information about Don Jr. and redactions of that information that pose an interesting question. So let me just read you the relevant language. Uh, this relates to the Trump Tower meeting uh, and to his participation in it. And the text of the report reads, Trump Jr., 
Manafort and Kushner participated on the Trump side, while Kavaladze, Summer Kornoff, Achmetshin, and Goldstone attended with Veselnitskaya. The office spoke to every participant except Veselnitskaya and Trump Jr., the latter of whom declined to be voluntarily interviewed by the office. And then there is a two-and-a-half-line, three-line redaction uh, that is marked grand jury, uh, as well as a subsequent redaction in the next paragraph of a little bit uh, less than two lines that is also marked grand jury. So what we know here is that Don Jr. declined to be voluntarily interviewed by the office and that the reason for or any further information about that uh, decision not to voluntarily submit to an interview was redacted for grand jury reasons. It's hard to know exactly what to make of it. Um, the fact that the redaction is a grand jury redaction is significant, however, because normally if somebody refuses to give an interview, what happens is you issue a grand jury subpoena. So presumably that is either an explanation of what the grand jury did or how he responded to it or both. Uh, and uh, one possibility, of course, is that the grand jury did issue a subpoena, which would be grand jury information that would have to be redacted. Uh, but then, of course, the question is, why wouldn't Donald Trump Jr. have given the interview in response to a grand jury subpoena? And I can really only think of one possible answer to that question, which is that he may have asserted his Fifth Amendment rights not to incriminate himself. First of all, I think it's an interesting puzzle question. Did John Don Jr. assert his Fifth Amendment rights to the Mueller investigation and declined declined to give information on that basis? And there's you know there's just inherent uh, interest, at least on my part, in that question. Uh, but the other thing is, you know, I, I I do think the ultimate inability of the uh, investigation to hear from Don Jr. about that meeting is notable as it kind of leaves a hole in our understanding of what that meeting involved and, you know, what Don Jr. was thinking beyond the text of his emails when he agreed to uh, uh, you know, agreed to meet with Veselnitskaya and in order to receive dirt from the Russian crown prosecutor. One shouldn't assume he pleaded, he, he, he took the fifth. Uh, that, is an, that is an inference that it is possible to draw from the text, but this is a redaction, not a statement of what happened, and I don't know that that's what happened. I, I, I think the text raises the question, and that's a plausible answer to it. Secondly, even if it is what happens, you, you never are supposed to draw a, an inference about somebody's conduct by the assertion of their Fifth Amendment rights. Uh, there are a lot of reasons beyond being guilty of crimes why people assert their Fifth Amendment rights, uh, uh, including that you know they're reasonably afraid of misunderstanding um, of, of their conduct or vulnerability on other matters. And so I don't think it's uh, ever a good idea to impute wrongdoing to somebody because of an assertion of Fifth Amendment privilege, if that's in fact what happened here. But that's not all about Don Jr. Here is Lawfare's executive editor, Susan Hennessy, on what else the report suggests about the conduct of Trump's son. So this has been sort of a point of curiosity for a long time. 
If we go all the way back to November 2017, it's first reported that there are these messages that Donald Trump Jr. exchanges with WikiLeaks on Twitter, and it's sort of widely known that WikiLeaks is really Julian Assange. And so if you're communicating with WikiLeaks via Twitter, in all likelihood, you are speaking to Julian Assange personally. And so when these Twitter DMs are are made public, it includes this exchange, which we did cover in one of the episodes, in which WikiLeaks gives Donald Trump Jr. the password for a PAC-run anti-Trump site, so putintrump.org. They say, you know, this this anti-Trump site is about to launch. You know, we've guessed the password, and they say the password is Putin Trump. And so they sort of send this to John Jr. and say, um, look at the about page to see who it's about, and do you have any comment? So they're basically telling him, like, we don't own this website. Um, we've guessed this password somehow, um, and, you know, we're giving it to you, and go, to, go, go log in and take a look. To which Donald Trump Jr. replies, you know, I don't know who it is, but I'll ask around, right? He kind of is sort of non-committal, but, but interested. So after that story was published, there was a sort of question about whether or not Donald Trump Jr. had actually used the password, because he doesn't tell WikiLeaks that he used the password. The reason why it's relevant is because had he used the password, it would be a violation of a law known as the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, um, which is commonly referred to as Section 1030. Section 1030 in the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act basically makes it a crime for anyone to intentionally access a computer without authorization um, and then obtain information from a protected computer. So a protected computer, in short, is any computer that's connected to the internet. And authorized access essentially means access that the owner of the website specifically gave you. So this seems like a pretty clear-cut case of if somebody tells you, here's a website, I've guessed the password or I stole the password, right? They're not saying this is my website and I'm giving you access. Um, And then you use that password to log into the website. You are intentionally accessing a protected computer in a way that exceeds the authorization because the fact that they've put a password on it means they didn't want people to access it unless they they had that password. So this was sort of... um, you know, a, a question that was asked at the time. And so then if you fast forward to April 2018, the HIPSI, the House Intelligence Committee, releases their Russia report. So not only does it have the Twitter DMs um, between Trump Jr. and Assange, it also has the email that Trump Jr. sends to the rest of the campaign in which he says, guys, I got a weird Twitter DM from WikiLeaks. See below. I tried the password and it works. And the about section they reference contains the next picks in terms of who's behind it. Uh, Not sure if this is anything, but seems like it really is WikiLeaks asking me as I follow them. And this is a DM. He goes on to sort of ask a bunch of other questions. So there is Donald Trump Jr. in black and white saying, yes, the answer is I did use the password. He literally says the words, I tried the password. Um, so when the sort of the hipster report came out, you know, the question was, well, is this, is he actually going to face charges for this? I mean, it's not often that people admit to all the elements of a criminal conspiracy in an email, but Donald Trump Jr. decided to do exactly that. So I don't think that there were that many people who thought he would really be indicted for that. So computer fraud and abuse prosecutions for something like this are relatively rare, although they're not unheard of. And just violating the uh, CFA is a misdemeanor, which is, of course, still serious, except for if the information... 
in question is worth more than $5,000. And actually, courts have been pretty expansive in how they define sort of how much this information might be worth. And so it very well could be a felony. And people often end up violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act as a felony. It happens more often than you might think. So what does this have to do with the actual Mueller report? The Mueller report comes out and Mueller confirms everything, you know, both the reporting and the Hipsy report, right? He describes the communication with Don Jr. and WikiLeaks. He describes this email where Don Jr. says he's using the password and so on. And so then in this section on charging decisions, um, you know, everyone's asking, like, well, obviously Don Jr. didn't end up getting charged. Um, there is this almost entirely redacted section. And so the unredacted part reads potential section 1030 violation by redacted. And then the entire discussion, except for sort of these two very brief lines, are unredacted. And so, you know, we can't be 1,000% positive that this is Donald Trump Jr. Because unlike, for example, Roger Stone, where there are other court documents that confirm this, we actually don't have some kind of official text to reference and say this is clearly about Trump Jr. Um, that said, it's like we could be pretty sure it's about Donald Trump Jr. because it's describing a potential violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And it has these two little unredacted lines where they basically say, look, the intention of Congress was not for this law to reach mistaken, inadvertent, or careless access, but instead intentional unauthorized access. And then goes on to say that this computer likely would be a protected computer. So again, a little bit of a weird analysis because this was intentional access. He might not have intended to break the law, but that's actually not an element here. He intended to access this computer. But right, obviously in circumstances in which, I don't know, he probably didn't know that this was a law, more sort of Don Jr. being a bonehead than um, genuinely malicious, although there are other examples of that, I would argue, in the Mueller report. Um, and then uh, sort of the second unredacted chunk says that applying the principles of federal prosecution, the office determines that a prosecution for this violation is essentially not warranted. So they're saying that, you know, pro in deciding whether or not you're actually going to prosecute someone just because you've, you have proof that they've committed a crime, you, know, you need to consider the nature and seriousness of the offense, sort of their, the person's individual culpability, how much, you know, what the sentence might be. And they just say, look, under these circumstances, this isn't the kind of thing that prosecutors really should be charging. I, I think it's just an interesting fact um, or, or suggestion that, you know, essentially the Mueller report has the president's son dead to rights on violating a law. And, you know, whether it's a misdemeanor, whether or not it's a felony, they have it in writing, all the elements here. Um, and they decide essentially to let him off the hook. They're like, well, you know, he didn't really seem like he, what he was doing was that bad. And so they basically decided to kind of turn a blind eye to it. And so I just think it's, a, it's an interesting and revealing story about actually how restrained Mueller was. Um, and whenever you see Donald Trump Jr. and Donald Trump Sr., you know, attacking Mueller as you know, sort of being biased and overreach, you actually realize that, no, there were places in which he could have been far more aggressive, that the, the criminal code certainly would have allowed him to do this. And, and, you know, remember, this is the context in which he's exchanging information with WikiLeaks about hacked emails and other contexts. I mean, right, this is the larger context here is not entirely innocent in terms of what Trump Jr. is up to. Um, but at the end of the day, Mueller decides to let him off the hook. On top of the redactions, there are also a great many things that the Mueller report touches on briefly but doesn't address in depth. One of those things is the story of Michael Flynn's lobbying work for the government of Turkey. 
Flynn, of course, was Trump's national security advisor and later pleaded guilty to lying to federal investigators about his contacts with Russia. And that conduct became a key part of the Russia investigation. But Flynn's contacts with the Turkish government, which Mueller doesn't really focus on, make for a wild story. Here's Lawfare's senior editor, Scott Anderson. So Michael Flynn left the Defense Intelligence Agency in 2014, and he does what a lot of these kind of former generals do. He starts lateraling into a variety of kind of consulting gigs. He goes and he gets a book deal. He started a company that's called the Flynn Intel Group, or FIG. Um, in 2015, he pulls in this partner, a guy named Bijan Rafikian. Um, FIG has kind of an eclectic constellation of clients from ranging from foreign companies to Silicon Valley firms up to this point. But in 2016, Mr. Rafikian sees an opportunity coming out of Turkey. In Turkey up to this point, it, it had recently had in the summer of 2016 a kind of failed coup attempt against the current president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And the Erdogan government took the position that that coup was the product of advocacy and conspiracy being led by an individual named Fatullah Gulen uh, and people who follow him were often called the Gulen movement or the Gulenists. Fatullah Gulen himself is a Turkish Islamic scholar who has been involved in leading this kind of global civil society movement based kind of around his teachings and a variety of more social principles and philosophical principles. Gulen himself put himself into self-imposed exile in 1999 and quickly settled in Pennsylvania, where he's remained since around that time. Shortly after the time of the coup, Rafikian makes contact with a Turkish-Dutch businessman named Camille Akim Alptekin. He owns a Dutch corporation that's called Innovo BV. Around this time, Innovo BV, after consulting with Rafikian, approaches the Flynn Intel Group and offers them about a half million dollar contract, $535,000, to conduct research and coordinate advocacy efforts related to the Gulen movement. Um, they're not very open about this. As late as 2016, 2017, and so this money led Flynn and the Flynn Intel Group to pursue a kind of number of activities on behalf of ANOVA. Flynn, very notably, writes an op-ed on Election Day in The Hill, a publication here in D.C. that's read kind of by the Washington uh, folks, although not by too many pe as many people outside of Washington, um, that really criticizes Gulen as something like an Islamic radical, compares him to the Ayatollah Khomeini in the 1970s, uh, and really urges Americans to see the world from Turkey's perspective. On this particular issue. But perhaps the most troubling and exceptional sort of activities that uh, Flynn and the Flynn Intel Group undertake uh, is a series of meetings that they have, not just with ANOVA, but also with Turkish government officials. The first meeting takes place in September 2016, where Flynn, Rafikian, and a few of their business associates sit down with Turkey's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Ministry of Energy to talk about a number of these sorts of activities that they've had going on on behalf of ANOVA, um, at least purportedly on behalf of ANOVA. One of the attendees at that meeting was another Trump advisor and a board member for the Flynn Intel Group, former CIA director James Woolsey, who later told reporters that at some point during that meeting, the idea came up of potentially removing Gulen from the country and delivering him to Turkish custody. 
the accounts of this particular conversation have been a little ambiguous about what precisely that meant in that context. Um, but bear in mind, in September, at this point, they were not U.S. government officials. So it's not clear what legal avenues they're necessarily pursuing here. Then there was a second meeting involving Flynn and his son, Michael Flynn Jr., in December 2016. At this point, it's after the election. Flynn knows that he's advising the future president, has inputs at this point, may be aware that he's likely at least to get a position in the incoming administration, um, if it's not even if it's not official yet. And supposedly they have more detailed conversation about this plan to the point that there's a discussion of a $15 million sum being paid to Flynn Intel Group for their involvement in this operation and the potential of flying Gulen back on a private jet into an area under Turkish control and sovereignty um, so that he can presumably be arrested and de detained, not the sort of steps you usually associate with a conventional legal extradition process. It's certainly, there's a number of criminal statutes that this would raise concern over, depending on the context and the means you use to get Mr. Gulen on that plane um, that puts him back in Turkish control. Um, for, you know, this plan doesn't necessarily appear to have gone anywhere, although, again, there are these continuing outstanding requests from Turkey regarding extradition that occasionally get discussed. The number one thing that's most remarkable about all of this in a lot of ways is that President Trump was expressly warned about Michael Flynn day one in his role as president. In his first meeting with President Obama, shortly after Election Day, President Obama told him when discussing personnel issues, you should be worried about Mike Flynn. Mike Flynn is not somebody you should be bringing into your closest national security conversations. And I think that is a revealing statement uh, about a lot of the ways President Trump has approached uh, his staffing decisions, both in his time in government and his time running a campaign, recruiting the various figures that we've been discussing as part of this uh, Miller investigation. That's all for now. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of The Report. Volume 2 of The Report will launch later this September. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and the Democracy Fund, and by listeners like you. To support this project, please go to lawfareblog.com support lawfare. The Report is a production by Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. Ian Enright is the executive producer. From the Lawfare team, the project is led by executive editor Susan Hennessy. The editor-in-chief is Benjamin Wittes. I'm Lawfare's managing editor, Quinta Jurassic. Recordings are by Michaela Fogel and Jacob Scholz, with additional assistance by Eugenia Lostry. To support this show, please share this podcast wherever you can. And while you're at it, please subscribe and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Our website, lawfareblog.com, is where you can learn more about Lawfare, read our work, subscribe to our newsletter, and support our mission. Till next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.